Our Father, the reason that we have gathered this morning is so that you might be praised. In everything that's said and done, we, our desire is that the end result would be that you would be magnified in our midst. So that men could see your, your eternal everlasting beauty. That we might be able to leave here today overwhelmed. Not with a sense of our, the, the negativity of our circumstances. But with a sense of your grandeur. Father, we, we, are, we are lost and immersed for six days a week in, in making a living and running a home and, and uh, meeting the needs of children and spouses. But for an hour, we come to be reminded of who we are and whose we are. That the, that the checkbook is not as important as we thought it was. That even our health it is not as critical as we think. We want to cut one eye towards eternity and be reminded that we are not bodies with souls. We are souls with bodies. And those souls were designed to give glory to God and to spend an eternity in praising the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. So, Father, accept our praises this morning. Inhabit them. Dwell among us and minister to your people by what is sung and what is prayed and what is preached. Father, we long to enter into your presence in such a way that we will never be the same. Lord, we want to mention the things that trouble us so. We, we lay before you the... Uh, the the, the situation that exists in a world where one major world religion has decided that we are the enemy. That we who name the name of Christ are, are to be eliminated. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will use uh, the, the words of the gospel to change our world instead of having it be changed by the end of a gun. I pray, Lord, that you will work in your church the burden for lost men and women before it's too late. And I pray that you will use this congregation to reach into the homes around us and the sphere of influence in which we exist and, and announce and declare that there is only, one and only one hope for, for men men's eternities, and that is a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Father, that's the end to which we give. It is the end to which we do all that we do as a church, that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be expanded. Place on each heart here the burden of lost men and the burden of lessening the suffering of the world in which we live. Father, it is indeed important to us that men meet Christ. But social justice is important to us too. Because we know it's important to you. We want to be a part of eliminating the incredible injustices that exist around the world. So use Gracie Van in those ways as well as numerous others. We give to that end and we give in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.
open them with me to the book of Acts, and let's return. You thought I had forgotten that we started a study of Acts, didn't you? Well, we've been interrupted with uh, a summertime series on Job, and then a a fall-time series on uh, marriage. And so now we return to where we left off in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. You find that, and we'll begin. Acts chapter 6. Begin reading with me at verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But when, but even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. As you've noticed, I'm sure, chapter 7 opens with a question. The question that is directed to Stephen is simply this. Are these things so? The answer um, to uh, what things, that is, what things are they accusing him of, are mentioned for you in chapter 6. I read that as well, verses 11 through 14. They speak about how he uh, uh, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and this Jesus of Nazareth was going to distort this place, etc., etc. So the chapter 7 begins with this question, alluding to the charges that have just been brought against him by the people mentioned in chapter 6. So those those two are connected. That's why I read through into chapter 7. It was charged falsely that Stephen had spoken against God, Moses, the temple, and the law. And for a Jew, 
what's left. He is being accused of ecclesiastical sedition, blasphemy, and heresy. And according to these trumped-up charges, Stephen was an enemy of the state of Israel by attacking everything dear and fundamental to Judaism. The law, Moses, God, and the temple. There's nothing left for someone to attack in Judaism. And then what comes next, beginning in chapter 7, after the question in verse 2, is Stephen's defense. Um, He spends 52 verses courageously and bravely and impressively defending himself. Now, I'm not going to read that defense. I'm not going to read all 52 of those verses. We're going to look at them kind of briefly. But uh, were you to do so, and if you are to do so, you might be tempted to, um, to come to a conclusion that what Stephen is doing is stalling. This is called filibuster in, in the Senate chamber, where somebody uh, puts together mounds and mounds of verbiage in an effort to shift the focus off of the real issues uh, so they don't have to face what uh, is, happens to be the, the, the most burning of the issues. You might think that Stephen is guilty of that, because what he does is take this long route at um, providing some Old Testament history to men who already know Old Testament history. It's like like, uh, standing before the United States Senate and saying, Gentlemen, in 1776, um, gentlemen, George Washington is the first president or was the first president of the United States. And so while the Sanhedrin is drumming their fingers, you know, wondering whether he'll ever get to the point, he does. Oh, he gets to the point all right. They don't like the point, but he gets to it. But that's a little bit later. So if you could stay with me for a couple of minutes, I'd like to show you some other things, point out a few things in this, this rather lengthy Defense on the part of Stephen. Now, I've already read verses 1 through 8 for you, uh, just to give you a taste of the defense and this taste of an Old Testament survey. But what you get in verses 1 through 8 is a brief recap of God and his covenant relationship with Abraham, something, of course, the Sanhedrin knew well. Um, this, none of this is new to these people sitting on this council, but the, but the first section of it has to do with the um, with God's entering into a covenant relationship with their father Abraham. I wanted to notice. I wanted you to notice something that is really, really a very minor thing. Just this is really off the subject, kind of. But I just thought I'd draw your attention to it. I wanted you to notice how he begins, brethren and fathers. Now, for those of you who are not Presbyterians, this is a little point for you. Um, I am a Presbyterian. I'm an ordained Presbyterian, and and I go to four meetings a year. Uh, I go to three Presbyterian meetings and one General Assembly. And and at those meetings, uh, when anyone, it is the custom in those meetings that if anyone rises to speak, 
they always begin with this formula. They always begin like this. Fathers and brethren or brethren and fathers. Why? Well, we are doing the same thing that Stephen is doing. And Stephen is acknowledging submission to a corporate authority. And he begins that way by acknowledging that indeed this body to whom he speaks is a body that has corporate authority. Um, recognizing that legal authority, uh, although his speech before it's over is going to contain something that is uh, awfully inflammatory. Well, I'm simply pointing out, guys, that that's what we do in our presbytery meetings, is, is acknowledging a corporate authority, and that's what Stephen's doing, uh, by beginning, beginning with this formula, fathers and brethren, or brethren and fathers. There's one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, just by way of an aside. Most scholars uh, who know about things like this um, suggest that this speech that you find in chapter 7 really becomes the point of departure of Christianity away from Judaism. It is the watershed. It is the, uh, after this speech and after the events that follow this speech, there is never again any hope of seeking to reconcile and merge Christianity with Judaism. As a result of what you see unfolding in this chapter, it's over. The breach is permanent. It has gone too deep, whereas some might have held out hope uh, prior to this in uh, reconciling the two religious bodies, not after this. This is the end. This is the end of the line. Christianity is completely broken away from its historic moorings, uh, of course, known as Judaism. Well, those are just some uh, uh, side roads, but back to the, the defense itself. You come to verse 9, and all the way through verse 19... Stephen mentions Joseph. That's a name that you should know. Joseph was the one of the sons of Jacob, you know, the, the, the favored son of Jacob, who was given the coat of many colors. Don't you remember in Sunday school when you painted that coat with all the different crayons? Well, uh, this is from 9 to 19. You get the story about Joseph. Uh, you get this, this envious uh, brother thing mentioned in there, and then the famine. And, you know, and Joseph was in prison, but he arises to the right hand of Pharaoh to manage the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. And, and that's mentioning there. And again, now guys, Stephen is standing in front of a group of people, kind of like you, and, and telling them things they already know. He's speaking to the Sanhedrin, giving them an Old Testament survey, and, and they're thinking, when is this guy going to shut up? We know all this. But anyway, that's what happens in verses 9 through 19. And then in verses 20 through 44, Moses is introduced. And there's a lot that is told us in those verses about Moses. His birth is mentioned. The murder of the Egyptian. You remember when Moses goes out and sees this Egyptian abusing a Jew and, and Joseph murders him and buries them in the sand and... Then he gets caught the next day by his two uh, Jewish brethren. And, and so Moses um, runs to the backside of, a, of the wilderness. That's included in here. And then the burning bush experience, that is mentioned. Uh, and then his going back to Egypt and the plagues that ultimately led to the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. That's all mentioned. The Red Sea or coming to the Red Sea is mentioned. Sinai and the golden calf. All of that is mentioned 
as Stephen is reminding this group of people about their history, and that, of course, that section of it has to do with Moses. And then in verses 45 through 50, uh, you get the Joshua, David, Solomon era mentioned, and, of course, a reference is made to the temple. And so you remember, I, I hope you remember, that... Stephen was accused of ecclesiastical sedition over four items. God, the law, Moses, and the temple. And in his defense, Stephen mentions all four of those things. And then in verse 51, he comes to the application. The history lesson is over. And Stephen is now ready to bring this thing to a very courageous point. Uh, And he says in verse 51, you are doing just as your fathers did, so do you. Everything that the fathers had done to all of those wonderful prophets across the millennia of Jewish history, you guys are doing the same thing. And at that point, ladies and gentlemen... This audience becomes a mob. And then in verse 53, Stephen mentions the law, uh, saying that uh, who have received the law by the direction of angels. And again, I hope you understand what he's doing. He is rebutting all four points of their accusations against him that were recorded for you in chapter 6. So having heard all of this wonderful presentation on the part of Stephen, the Sanhedrin replies, having been moved by his impeccable logic, they are, they are moved and they say, having heard what they've heard, and they cry out with a, 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 a stricken heart with great reverence and great remorse, oh my goodness, what a terrible error we have made, how could you ever forgive us? No, ladies and gentlemen, that is not their response. Logic or no logic, these men are enraged. And in verse 54, we're told that when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth at him. They gnashed at him with their teeth. They're beginning to act like a bunch of animals. This very dignified group of scholars and religious leaders, they are now baring their fangs. They spit and drool and because they are absolutely infuriated. Now that, all of that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to what I think, at least in my opinion, is the very apex of this story. And it's contained for you in verse 55. May I read it? But he, that is Stephen, being full of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing At the right hand of God. Now gang. This may not have 
been of any consequence to you when you first saw it. But note this. The normal posture for Jesus' heavenly existence is described as he being seated. You know, guys, you remember the, those of us who were raised around the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he arose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and seated at the right hand of God the Father. Guys, Psalm 110 depicts him as being invited to sit at my right hand. Psalm 110 is quoted in Matthew chapter 22. And then all throughout the New Testament, uh, he is depicted, he is, he is described as being seated. Listen to this in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The entire Bible and all of our tradition, ladies and gentlemen, has depicted him and described Jesus after his resurrection and ascension to be seated at the right hand of God the Father in the position of cosmic authority. But on this occasion, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is described not as seated, but as standing. The only place in the New Testament, ladies and gentlemen, where Jesus Christ is described as standing is right here. And why is he standing? The text doesn't tell us. But I think it does give us grounds to to suggest some things both explicitly and implicitly about his standing up. Let me mention a couple explicitly and then three implicitly. Number one, in terms of what this text teaches us explicitly. Number one, it teaches us that Jesus was alive. Certainly condemned by this world, crucified, dead and buried by this world, treated harshly and cruelly. But now we see him exonerated and venerated in heaven as the king of kings. You fellows who thought I was dead, you were wrong. Dead wrong. I'm not dead. Jesus is depicted as alive. And secondly, explicitly taught in this text, is by his receiving Stephen at his death, I think we can safely say that you and I are being taught that there is no such thing as some kind of purgatory for the dead saint. Stephen steps out of a pool of his own blood and onto golden streets. To be absent from that body was to be present with the Lord. So those are a couple of things, ladies and gentlemen, that we can derive from this picture right here, explicitly taught. But may I conclude with a couple of three things that are implicitly taught, that are implied And very frankly, here's where my excitements lie. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, this Savior of ours is standing in abject horror at the deed being done to one of his own. 
You know, I'm not a, um, I'm not a contemporary mu- a Christian music expert. I'm not a music expert at all. Um, but I don't know much about contemporary Christian music. I, um, I don't listen to WRVR or, what, or, or WCRV or whatever it is. I, I, don't, I, I just don't know much about it. And so when people tell me this person sang that or this person, you know, I'm pretty much in the dark. But there is one song that I've, I've always loved, and it's, it's been sung around here a couple of times. It's kind of cheesy, I guess, because it's old. But it was sung by Twyla Paris. Anybody with a name like Twyla, how could you enjoy it? But anyway, um, but Twyla Paris sings this song that I've always loved. Do you remember it? It's, um, every heart that is breaking tonight. Is the heart of a child that he holds in his arms. And oh, how he loves. And then it goes on to say, he sees you. He loves you. Jesus loves you. Twyla Paris will probably roll over in her grave, but but I don't know whether she had this text in her mind when she wrote that song. But guys, the whole idea of Jesus absolutely in revulsion at the pain and the grief and the injustice that's being inflicted on one of his own. You know, a, a wife who is stuck in a marriage where her husband loves his pornography. Well, God must not care. Well, not according to this scene, ladies and gentlemen. A, a, a man who is undervalued and underappreciated in a dead-end job. You wonder if God knows what's happening and unfolding in my life. Well, according to this text, he does. The couple who stands beside a small casket that contains their two-year-old. Has he forgotten me? Not according to this. I can say to you, ladies and gentlemen, like Twyla Paris said, he sees you. Much more real to Stephen than the hatred of his murderers was the fact that his Savior saw him in the midst of all of his suffering and in the midst of all of those things that threatened to wrench the very life out of us. sees you. I don't know whether that comforts you. It comforts me that I'm not forgotten and that I'm not, I've not been left alone to wrestle with all of the injustices that inflict me as well as you. Much more real to us than the nasty circumstances in which we find ourselves ought to be the promises of this standing Savior of ours. Your tears do not go unnoticed, ladies and gentlemen. He has not forgotten the travails of his people. There is no unthinking, uncaring spectator Savior that you and I are committed to. 
And when the time comes, our Lord will will grant us mercy to face whatever it is that we're facing. Jesus is a living and seeing and standing and outraged Savior. Secondly, again, I think being taught in this text implicitly is that he rises to welcome his own. He stands to greet and welcome and even assist his servant in this, this, this final passage of his. What he is doing is keeping his promise that he made throughout the Gospels. You remember the promise about whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess him before my father. Well, here he is. Confessing Stephen before his father. This is one of mine, father. The world is frowning and acting like a bunch of wild animals to Stephen. And Jesus is standing and smiling and receiving him and owning him and confessing him before his father. This is one of mine. And I say to you, my friend, you can expect that as well. He kept his promise for Stephen and he'll keep his promise for you. And then thirdly, this presence of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father means that the great hope of all of his people has been fulfilled in Christ. Let me tell you what I mean by that. What is the great hope? What was the great hope of Judaism? What is our great hope? The great hope of Judaism, ladies and gentlemen, is that they would somehow gain access to the Father. That somehow they would be introduced into the presence of the Father. Do you remember this story? And I've told this before, but John 14, where at the close of Jesus' life, and, and they're, uh, they're all kind of figuring it out that he's about to die. And, you know, um, and, and so Philip steps forward and he says, Jesus, I have just one further request of you. If you could do just one more thing, one more thing, for, uh, Jesus, it is all I ask. And then Jesus says, okay, Philip, what is it? And he says, Jesus, show us the Father. Would you show us the Father? And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you for this long and you have not yet figured it out that he who hath seen me hath seen the Father. But Philip was simply giving voice, ladies and gentlemen, to the great hope of Judaism. Will we ever see the Father? Will we ever gain his presence? All of the Old Testament. For instance, when when Jonah, you know the story when Jonah rebelled and did not want to go to this other city. He was being disobedient and sinful. (coughs) Yes, but do you know that one of the reasons that he didn't want to leave Israel is because for the Jew to go outside of the national boundaries of Israel was to leave the presence of God. I don't want to do that, says Jonah. Read the psalm. Psalm 48 is a classic illustration how the psalmist would walk up and down the streets of Jerusalem and just glory in every rock. Every stone in Jerusalem was sacred to the Jew. Why? Because Jerusalem in their minds represented that God was present with them. 
The great hope of Judaism has always been access to the Father. And here we are taught, ladies and gentlemen, that the way to enter God's presence is through Jesus Christ. The only route through into the presence is not the temple. It is not through ceremony. It is not through ritual. It is not through law. The only access to God is through Jesus Christ. If I am ever to gain His presence, it will come as I go through His Son. This text includes where Stephen calls Him the Son of Man in verse 56. And for those religious leaders, that was the final straw because they knew the significance of that title. That was a title that was used in Daniel chapter 7 to describe the Ancient of Days. And they knew what Stephen was saying about Jesus Christ, that he was ascribing deity. So the only way that any man is ever going to enter the presence of God is through his Son, who is divine himself. That's what's being said. You know, guys, um, I, have to, I have to pick movies pretty carefully. I, I don't go to a lot of movies. I would, most of the time, end up going to see the movies that Susie wants to see because they're usually the ones that are calmer. And Susie and I sit in a movie theater, and, you know, they give these previews of these movies. And, you know, these ones that have all these people being shot all over the place and, you know, and blood bling shed and these strange visual effects and all that business. And in the previews, you know, we're, we're 16 seconds into the preview, and my wife will turn to me and she'll say, not that one. And, and so we get to kind of figure out which movies we're going to go to. And there's a movie that many of you have seen that I have not seen. I can't see it because it'll cost me three nights of sleep. Saving Private Ryan. I've never seen it. I can't stand to see arms being separated from humans' bodies. I, that just does me in, and, and, and I'll be up for three days. Last time I did that was uh, uh, Air Force One, which was about seven years ago. And really, I didn't sleep for three days. So we have to go see the girly movies uh, that are calm and, uh, you know. But, but anyway, I read an article about Saving Private Ryan. And, and, I, and I know, of course, the theme. It's uh, Tom Hanks is the captain who, uh, after D-Day, um, uh, is given an assignment to take this squad of, of soldiers to find Private Ryan because three of his brothers had already been killed in World War II. And so this squad of soldiers complains about their assignment. They, they gripe about the, the general and insult, it, insult him who ordered this horrible thing. And, and then they launch out into this, this, uh, this effort to try and save and find, uh, find and then save Private Ryan. And, and while they're behind enemy lines, they engage the enemy. And several of the squad are killed in this, this quixotic mission of theirs. And at, at the very end of the movie, Private Ryan, the, the, of course the one that they've been looking for all the movie, comes upon the captain, Tom Hanks, who is lying mortally wounded on the battlefield. And in this, this final scene of the movie, Tom Hanks is being cradled by Private Ryan. 
And he looks around and surveys all of the devastation and all the bloodshed and all the killing that has gone on in the, in the efforts of trying to save Private Ryan. And the last line in the movie that you may recall is Tom Hanks looks up into Private Ryan and he says, Earn this. Earn this. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, those two words summarize the religion of countless millions around the world. It's a great movie line, ladies and gentlemen, but it's also a theological statement, not in the movie, but it's the theological statement of the Sanhedrin, because they understood, or at least thought they understood, that the only way they will ever gain access to the Father is to earn it. And my friends, if you have arrived here today thinking the same thing, you are as lost as the Sanhedrin. The religion of the world is summarized in those two words. Earn it. And I say to you, the only way to gain access to the Heavenly Father is through His Son. My friends, this story is not about the first Christian martyr. It is not about bravery and courage on the part of Stephen, although it is impressive. Stephen can't save you, ladies and gentlemen. And neither can bravery, and neither can courage, and neither can merit. Neither can go into church. This is a story about Stephen's standing Savior. Do you know him? Father, I do pray that your word will come alive in the hearts and souls of your people and that we will be reminded of the great kindnesses that you show your people um, in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their difficulty, and that you will confess us before the Father. But Father, it is also a very clear statement about how it is that any of us will gain access to you and it will only come through this Savior that you provided, whose name was Jesus of Nazareth. To know him is life indeed. To not know him is to be separated from you forever. O oh God, use this glorious picture of our Savior to excite and to draw those who are outside the family of faith to draw them inside this household. We commit this effort of ours to you in hopes that the Holy Spirit will use it. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.